Welcome to Help Me to Understand, a podcast where women give their voices to issues of social justice, political activism, giving back, and other topics relevant today. I'm your host, Felicia Garland. As you look around, you can't avoid the fact that we live in an age of political and social divisions, global warming, economic and racial inequality, and a breakdown in many of our social structures. And that was just this morning's news. I find it can be all so confusing, and I bet you do as well. Perhaps you'd like to make a difference in the world, even if only a small one, but you feel you need more knowledge and understanding around the issues we face in order to develop the tolerance, empathy, and compassion you need to become a force for good. It's my mission with this podcast to hear from women who are working every day to make a difference. So welcome, curious listener, to this journey of discovery and understanding. I'm so glad you're here. Together, let's become a force for good. Joining me today is Sarah Preston. Sarah is the executive director for Lillian's List, a not-for-profit that recruits, trains, and supports pro-choice progressive women to run for public office in North Carolina. Sarah joined Lillian's List after almost a decade as the policy director at the American Civil Liberties Union for North Carolina. Experienced at working with policymakers at the state and local levels, she's become a strong advocate for reproductive freedom. Sarah received her BA from St. Catherine University and her JD from Drake University. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Well, thank you so much for having me. So let's start a little bit at the beginning. I understand that Lillian's List was established in 1997 by two women, uh, Laura Edwards and Jan Allen, who I gather were pretty active in political circles and progressive ideas in North Carolina. What was going on at the time, either nationally or in, in North Carolina, that motivated them to create Lillian's List? You know, there were there were several women in addition to Jan and Laura, certainly they spearheaded things. But I think that really what the, the group of women recognized was that we weren't really making progress the way that that we would like to as women in terms of having a seat at the table, being involved in decision making, particularly decision making about things that would impact women specifically, things like reproductive health care, pay equity, child care, all of these things that really not having a voice at the table was impacting our lives. And they wanted to create something that would focus, at that time, it was political action committee, it would focus on fundraising for women who decide to run for public office. And that was sort of how it was originally created. It, they, they, they talked about the power of the purse, right? And creating sort of a giving collective of women who would support other women running for office. So that was really where it sort of originated. Okay. Is progressive women versus, or in addition to women who are pro-choice, is there a, uh, is it sort of, do we have to be both? Can you be one without the other? The reason I'm asking is certainly with Roe versus Wade having been the law of the land now for a while, is there the same impetus for pro, pro-choice issues? Are pre- reproductive rights at risk now that we still need to address those issues? Absolutely. That's a great question. You know, I think as they saw in the mid-90s, it continues to this day that there are just wave after wave of attacks against reproductive freedom and particularly 
actually having things like abortion accessible to women in all parts of the state and all parts of the country. And so, you know, we, we, we constantly see this issue keep going back on up to the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court. We constantly see it sort of debated in legislatures as they try, as folks who are anti-choice try to whittle down accessibility to healthcare for women. And there has been over the last couple of years, I think, really intensified attacks against reproductive freedom across the country. And so definitely we still see the need to have advocates that can fight on behalf of access to reproductive health care and try to protect it for North Carolinians as well as expand access. Mm-hmm. And, and that issue, plus pay equity and powers of the purse, as you said, these are really things that are impacted at the local level. Absolutely. That we, we think we look to the federal government to protect these things, but in fact, it's the local level where this matters. Right. And I mean, that is something that I think we overlook so often is how much of a role, like all of these law, all of these laws that get challenged and go up to the US Supreme Court, they started at a state legislature. So, you know, we we keep looking at the US Supreme Court to sort of save us. When in fact, we could save ourselves by electing people who represent our values at the state legislature or even down ballot. You know, we could look at city councils and county commissions. They have a lot, you know, county commissions have a lot to do with the public health departments and really look at what is going on locally as well. Mm -hmm. So I was familiar with Emily's list, which I think was a bit of a forerunner to Lillian's list. Mm-hmm. Do other states have a Lillian's, and Emily's list being sort of on, I think, of a more on a national level, or do I misunderstand that? And do other states have a Lillian's list equivalent and they all work together? Or? Yeah, we, so our founders sort of modeled us on Emily's list. We're not actually affiliated with them, but we, we sort of jokingly refer to them as the mothership, right? Like they mm-hmm. were the ones who inspired us and a lot of our early work and formatting was based on the Emily's List model. You're right, Emily's List really works on the national level. So they look at you know federal races for the most part, although they do some legislative work as well. But they are they're nationwide, so they're not going to drill down in the same way that a, that a local organization would. There are some other what we call sister lists in other states. Not every state has one, though. I think there's probably somewhere between 15 and 20 lists okay. operating. And they have different names, you know, I think one of them is called like WinPAC and they're just different names that they've given and sort of different actually organizational structures as well. But we definitely try to stay in touch with them as much as we can and learn from each other and kind of bolster each other and share best practices. Mm -hmm. Now, you said that all offices, even city council, town council, those offices can make a difference. Are you focusing at all levels or more the state legislative levels and I think what's called the Council of State in North Carolina, which is the executive offices that are open Mm -hmm. to to voting. So where is your focus and how does that work? Yeah, we so we started out in, in the 90s when we were first created, really focusing at the legislative level. That was our primary focus. But as time has gone on and as we've grown, we expanded first the Council of State. Mm-hmm. And then moved on. Now, more recently, we've started working more at the local level. And particularly our way of doing that, we've actually just added someone who's doing local engagement for us, really recruiting and, and supporting women who might want to run locally. But we've also offered a whole panoply of trainings, which have moved online over the last year so that we could continue to offer them. But they, our trainings 
focus on sort of all levels of office. You can certainly go to trainings that are really specific to running locally. We have a general one that you could kind of like just dabble your toe in and see if you this might be for you and get a sense of what campaigning looks like and how you might organize your life to campaign and to serve. And then we have much more intensive ones that are still sort of meant more for the legislative candidates. Mm-hmm. How does that, if it does, starting out for a woman, as you said, wants to put her toe in the water, starts out at a local level mm-hmm. and that, and how is that sort of a feeder perhaps for moving up the food chain? It's, uh, yeah, we, we refer to it as the pipeline, you know, it's sort of, yeah, the, the, there are plenty of women and actually our vice president is an example of a woman who ran at the local level and moved up and is now, you know, vice president. But we also have, you know, locally, we have examples of that. Congresswoman Alma Adams started out, I believe on the city council and she served in the state legislature and now is at the congressional level. And we certainly do we have lots of legislators who have backgrounds at, you know, school board, county commission, town or city council. So we we definitely believe that, especially for women, it might be appealing to start at the local level where you don't necessarily have to travel. The time commitment might be a little bit less. But as you gain that experience and perhaps your focus shifts or broadens on what you want to impact, that moving up is is a viable option for women. And it there is nationwide, there's some statistics to suggest that people just generally who have served locally are more successful running for higher mm-hmm. office. I like to say the more exposure and again, the comfortable, being more comfortable with campaigning and the fundraising aspect. But we'll talk about that in a sec. I gather Lillian's list has been pretty successful in the last couple of election cycles in terms of the number and percentage of women you've supported and how they, what the actual success rate has been. Yeah. So we've been, one of the things that's happened over the last really four years, the last couple of election cycles, is we've seen this huge increase in the number of women running, Mm -hmm. right? Which I think is a success in and of itself, because it it really used to be the case that the reason women were underrepresented was largely because they weren't running. Mm -hmm. They weren't being recruited. They weren't being encouraged. They themselves were not finding that an appealing course of action. But we've certainly seen a big spike in, in women running for office. And in the last couple cycles, we've had our two largest classes of featured candidates, which these are these are women running in competitive seats or they're new candidates who need, you know, in our view, might benefit from a little extra support. And we kind of, we endorse them, but we provide what we call 360 degree support. It's a model where We're really with them from recruitment. We often identify them as candidates and sort of encourage them to run. And we provide training. And then once they're filed candidates, we continue the training. We might train even campaign staff and volunteers for them. And we provide some financial support through our political action committee, which still exists, the Lillian's List PAC. And so through and, you know, we as staff are there to support them throughout as well, sort of consulting and sometimes just emotional support throughout the campaign. We, you know, it's a pretty intensive process and we really try to invest a lot in our candidates, in our top candidates. And so we've had, we had 20 candidates in 2018 and eight of them won, which I think was our largest class of winning candidates. And then this year we had 24 candidates. So again, just each cycle it's increasing. And again, we had eight, eight winning candidates who were either new or competitive, you know, fighting for competitive seats. So yeah, we've definitely, I think we've supported all but two of the women who are currently serving on the Council of State or the legislative, you know, the legislature. 
we have pretty broad support. We give a lot of support to the progressive pro-choice women who are running. So you mentioned that you sometimes Lillian's List identifies a potential candidate. I'm curious how that kind of that process works, but also a woman who may say kind of self-select in a way. What are you looking for? What would a scout, I think you have scouts actually, what do they go out and look for? What's a good candidate? Yeah, I mean, the primary thing is just, are you already engaged in your community? Are you, you know, engaged in activities that are, you know, you're trying to better or advance life for people in your community, for your own family, whether it's volunteering or your own work, however it works, but really it's people who are very connected already, women who are very connected already to their community. We don't really feel like there's any one qualification or experience that makes you ready to run for office, but if you're already connected to your community, you're already involved in these ways, you're already trying to serve in some ways, you know, again, volunteerism or your work or, you know, even just your family life. That these are the things that we really look for because we, we feel like most of the other things that you need to be a good candidate, you can learn, you know, public speaking, you can learn how to fundraise, you can learn. All of those things can kind of be built as skills. They're not necessarily things you have to have innately, but really being connected to your community and coming out of it is something that I think will make you a good candidate, will make you a more successful candidate and a more successful elected mm-hmm. official. So you're a woman, you're active in your community. Maybe you've never run for elective office, but someone sort of taps you for Lillian's list and say, I think you might want to consider this and such. And I think you may have uh, hit on some of the concerns. Maybe the fundraising sounds pretty intense and difficult to do. What other concerns or uh, that what a woman maybe express when you come and approach her? Yeah, I think fundraising is certainly one of the top ones. I think there are some people who are very nervous about the public speaking, if that's not something that you've had to do as part of your you know normal day-to-day life. Attacks, like negative attacks by your opponents is something that has started to come up. And I think another one that comes up pretty regularly is for women who have small children, figuring out how to balance their caretaking responsibilities, their work, and you know, running for and serving an office. So sort of a time management <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> concern. And I do think that, you know, for some folks, that may not be as much of a personal concern as it is a concern about being questioned about uh-huh. it, because I think it happens more and we hear it from our candidates more that, you know, potential voters and even the media might be asking them, well, who's looking after your kids? Which they don't ask of, you know men who have young children. Uh So it's it's a special concern that women have that men, I don't think, face when they're considering run for office. Yes, an interesting challenge. I think we face that in many different aspects, whether it's our professional lives or certainly I can see it being an issue still to this day. Are there other challenges that are unique to women because of fundraising, public speaking, negative attacks? Every candidate is subject to that. Are women just more sensitive to those things? Well, I think the fundraising, you know, there was, I actually think that over the years, our candidates have proven to be some of the most effective fundraisers. Uh, Why is that? I'm curious. Why do you think that is? Well, I actually think that part of it is that we spend a lot of time training them to do it. (laughs) Well, that helps. I know how to ask. Yeah, no, it's a completely fair question. But the other thing is that that more women are engaging in supporting, you know, politically supporting and, and contributing to candidates. There's sort of a growing bucket of political donors that are women and they're supporting other women, not exclusively, but I do think that, you know, if you look at 
there is some research that suggests that they support women at a higher level. And certainly that continues to be an emphasis that we have. But I think that it certainly sounds very challenging when you tell people that they have to raise several hundred thousand dollars to run a legislative race. Like that can be very intimidating. And I think it probably is more intimidating to women than men. Again, a lot of our candidates come out of networks and professions that might not be, you know, the wealthiest or highest paid professions, they might not view themselves as having a lot of money in their own networks that they can fundraise. And so we we really have to encourage them and try to help them have the tools to, to fundraise. And I do think there is a little bit of special sort of, we know that, again, women sort of receive less fundraising support, and particularly women of color receive less fundraising, you know, donor support than men do. But I feel like that that is perhaps something that's slowly ebbing away and we've we've chipped away at that as an obstacle. But I do, you know, I think the negative attacks are different for women as well. Women do, I think women do perhaps take them more personally than, than some men who might shrug them off. But I also think that women get attacked on things that men don't get attacked about, the, you know, childcare being one of them, but also... You know, we we hear it all the time in the media, people talking about a woman's appearance, and you never hear that about a man or even a woman's tone of voice. And again, you don't don't hear that about male candidates. So, you know, women hear that and they see that and they and it makes them question whether they really want to get in the fray. And happily, more and more of them are inspired to do it because they're seeing other women do it, but they still want to know how to address it. And, you know, we want to work with them to make sure that they're prepared for it. Can you train someone to have a thicker skin? (laughs) Well, we call it confidence (laughs) training. So we offer confidence or resiliency training, right? So it's not necessarily that you won't be offended or feel the negative Mm -hmm. attacks, but that you know how to sort of manage them and move move Mm -hmm. on, not internalize it. Maybe this goes back a little bit earlier in the discussion. Are there other issues that have become triggers for women say, drawing of legislative maps is uh, certainly an issue I've seen going forward, Mm -hmm. gerrymandering. Are there other issues Mm -hmm. like that that have been triggers for women, not just the pro-choice issues? Yeah. I mean, a lot of our candidates, we have found they get into this because there is one specific thing that has fired them up. And certainly gerrymandering is one. For a lot of them, it's actually, you know, public education really engages them and gets them fired up. We've had a few that really are engaging around environmental questions and concerns. But I think, you know, we had we had a couple of candidates last cycle who were really particularly interested in, in issues addressing poverty. They saw high poverty in their districts. And I think the pandemic sort of exacerbated that. And they were really looking for ways to address, you know, extreme poverty and make sure that people had health care and safe schooling and all of those things. So it's it's not always reproductive health care that gets them motivated, right? But once they're in it, those are values that they share with with us, with other, you know, the majority of North Carolinians, mm-hmm. actually. You touched upon a number of places, the sort of training and how extensive it is and how much is available. Mm-hmm. Specifically, you mentioned fundraising, which, as you said, I think that's a, a biggie, the public speaking. What other mm-hmm. trainings do you have? And you said also training their staff. A certain extent. Is there something in there that I, right. I missed? No. So we we do train on campaign staff. We do it in two different ways. We sort of we have a training where people who might want to get into staffing campaigns might come in and learn. It's a, it's a multi day training that we do, and then we also do you know if if a can if our candidates have staff who need training, we'll do a, a training for them as well. 
And we train volunteers as well, which is another you know way in which people who might not be interested in running for office, but might still want to engage, that's a great place to sort of enter into it. And those two are co-ed, you know, we, we accept men and women and other identifying folks to come into those trainings and kind of get trained to basically support candidates. And then we do have women-only trainings. Okay. Those are really more for our potential candidates and our candidates. So we have, you know, public speaking, we have fundraising. We actually, really at this time of year, we're just launching our training program and it's kind of a broad training that gives you an overview of the full sort of campaign process so that you can get a sense of what you'd be getting okay. into and then plug in in the way that you think makes the most sense for you. It might not be running for office, but it might be volunteering. It might be, you know, the staffing options, Mm -hmm. but it kind of gives you that sense of what's out there. So one of the goals with this podcast is to introduce women who might have a passion around a particular organization or issue or concern is to find something that resonates with them. And as a not-for-profit, I can imagine that money always helps. No, mm-hmm. you're not going to turn it away. But you talked about sure. women coming in at different levels, either as a volunteer, as a candidate, as a staff member. Are there other ways that a woman can get involved if she's interested short of running herself for office? Yeah. You know, it's often said that it takes seven asks for a woman to say that she will run for office. And I think one thing you can do is is be, you know, as you referred to earlier, a scout and just look for these women who have great potential and should be considering a run for office and telling them to do it, asking them to do it, encouraging them. And you can actually go to our website, which is liliansList.org, and you can suggest candidates to us on our website. And if you do that, then we will send them emails about our trainings. So maybe they will actually sign up for a training. But certainly, I think even just acting as a scout and letting us know if you find someone or just encouraging the women in your life to think about it as an option can be really valuable because it really does take more encouragement for women to even think of themselves as potential candidates than, you know, for men in most cases. I can imagine that a scout would see something in somebody that the woman doesn't necessarily see in herself. Is there anything else that you'd like us to know at this point that I didn't cover that you'd like to see we discuss? discuss? You know, the only thing I would say is that it's definitely an ongoing process and you don't always see results immediately. So, you know, engaging at any level and just sort of getting started and then figuring out, you know, even if you start out just as that person who's nudging your friends to run, that is huge in my mind. But like, we're already starting to scout for 2022 and 24 and so forth. And the training programs are getting off the ground. This is, you know, a 365 days a year, every single year kind of work that needs to be done to get us you know, to a point where women are actually represented appropriately. Mm -hmm. I read that your founder, Jan Allen, one of your founders, a phrase of hers was, we're in it for the long haul. Yeah. (laughs) That's what she said. Yeah. I mean, we covered at roughly 25, 26% women's representation for a while now. And we, I think, need a big effort altogether as women to really move that figure. Mm -hmm and get us to, you know, women are 54% of the population. We may as well, we need to have 54% of the legislature as well. Sounds like a good idea. Now, (laughs) you did mention Lillian's List website, which was uh, Mm liliansList.org. Would we find information there about your, and you you said you're looking now for candidates for 2022. Would we find information there about your candidates at some 
point in time, when would a woman or any interested person look for that kind of information? Yeah, absolutely. Our website, we probably towards the end of the year, depending on when filing ends up being, it's right now supposed to be in December, candidate filing. But you would find information about the candidates we've endorsed on our website. You can find information about our trainings as well if you are interested in in taking a training. And you could also find information about, like like I said, you can suggest candidates to us. So there's a form to be able to do that as well. So just listeners, just so you know, I am going to put the link to the Lillian's List website on the Help Me to Understand website. Thanks so much, Sarah, for joining me today. It's really been fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's it for this episode of Help Me to Understand. If you like what you've heard, please go to our website, helpme2understand.com to listen to more great episodes. Or better yet, subscribe to receive new episodes as they are released. I'm so glad you can join me. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.